Welcome to the Ownership Economy Podcast, the podcast that explores the people and ideas that are utilizing technology, economics, and the law to reimagine how the economy can work for everyone. Here we connect with the entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, academics, and politicians that are constructing the ownership economy by expanding access to broad-based ownership and democratic governance. I'm Martin Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jahed Maman. We are two investors and operators that aim to use this platform to showcase the people and ideas that will shape a society that offers more economic opportunity for all. Today, we are joined by Jason Prado, Director of Platform at the Drivers Cooperative. He worked previously at Google and Facebook and has made the switch to a cooperative startup venture that aims to put more governance and ownership rights in the hands of its stakeholders. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jason. Hey, it's great to be here. So I think we can kick this off kind of in the regular way of just saying, you know, can you give our audience a bit of an intro to you as a person, your background in tech and anything else you want to mention? Sure. So hi, all. My name is Jason Prado. Currently, I'm the director of platform at the Drivers Cooperative, which is a New York-based rideshare service that is building a rideshare and logistics platform launching in New York City. Launched last year, actually. But it, unlike existing rideshare monopolies, it is 100% owned by drivers. All uh, governance and shares ultimately fall back to the drivers who, who do the labor on the gig platform. A little bit about my background is I have kind of a more or less traditional tech background. I went to Stanford to com- study computer science like a million years ago. I worked at Microsoft, Google, Facebook for most of the past like 15 years. Started a startup somewhere in the middle there. But along that path in like 2015, 2016, I started to read about and learn more about labor and the history of the labor movement in the US and around the world and became more and more involved in labor struggles in the tech industry. So I've spent about eight years at Facebook and in the middle of that, got involved in unionization campaigns of groups of workers on campus. So cafeteria workers, security officers, uh, transportation workers uh, unionized during my time there. And I got to kind of learn about labor struggles up close by working with workers there and, and doing whatever I could to help out with those campaigns. And that led me over the, the next several years, I worked at Facebook to kind of diverge in my values from the Silicon Valley scene. And then eventually culminated with me leaving in 2020 to work in the, on the Bernie Sanders campaign for a month or two before that wrapped up and the pandemic started. Uh, and since then, I've been researching cooperatives and platform cooperatives. And last year, found a role here at the Drivers Cooperative and have been working on this since. Super cool. So it seems like you've worked in the belly of the beast, so to speak, multiple beasts, Microsoft, Google, Facebook. And then you kind of educated yourself on labor, labor movements, labor organizing. To the extent that you can, you know, because I don't know what you can and can't talk about having worked at some of these places, but the extent that you can, what was it like to work inside Facebook and Google? Maybe just pick one. Walk us through uh, it. Sure. I mean, I spent a couple of years at Google, but then almost eight years at Facebook. And I mean, as far as workplaces go there, the day-to-day of working at these places is, is excellent. Um, you know, that's why people love to work there and they pay well and you get to work with the, the newest and best technologies and really be at the cutting edge of things. So that that's something I will always appreciate about those, those places. In terms of like... What I started to see is like the problems of working there and and being involved in Silicon Valley generally. I guess there's kind of a culture of, at Facebook especially, there's a culture of always seeing yourself as the underdog so that, you know, they kind of still think of themselves as like this thing running out of a dorm room that like is up against the world, which I think leads these companies to make pretty 
bad decisions about, you know, their role in the world. Like we're right because we're us is kind of the default mindset there. So it's not that they're not completely not introspective, but there's just like this default culture of thinking like, you know, whatever we do is good because our mission is so important or because, you know, we're up against these really entrenched powers that are even worse. And that they just fail to update their like viewpoint as, you know, the Facebook and Googles of the world become some of the most powerful entities on earth and deserve all the scrutiny that like a state gets, but they're like, they really see themselves as above it. So that's kind of my takeaway of like why the big corporate Silicon Valley thing was not for me. Got it. And then for me as well, I, you know, and Martin as well, we have, you know, startup experience here and there. We started companies, we work within startups in that 500 to 1000 and also way below that you know, uh, area. And so looking at your experience within Facebook and Google, how does it contrast now to working in a workers' cooperative? Gosh, working at a workers' cooperative is a lot more chaotic. I think we have all the you know difficulties of being a, an early stage startup. We have, I think, about 10 to 15 people on staff now, about nine engineers. So all the difficulties you'd expect, you know, struggling for funding, like starting from scratch, and then also the difficulties of trying to be worker-driven and democratic. So there's some ways that we're succeeding in that like we you know drivers are pretty involved in major decisions they have ultimately like the power to elect the board and set policy i mean there's some ways there that's difficult to make decisions quickly and also democratically i guess one kind of contrarian thing i like to say is actually facebook is an extremely democratic organization in that there is a lot of power in the leaves of the organization like an individual employee an individual engineer or worker has a ton of power if you're the right kind of worker and have the right kind of look and have the right kind of like status to really affect major change in the organization. So, and that's because, you know, empowering the leaves of an organization is actually the best strategy to make the decisions and move quickly. And big companies have understood that they're actually, you know, not as top down as you might think. They're not like the U S military or something, but that's all kind of backstopped by this understanding that Everyone has one job, and that is to maximize shareholder value and maximize revenue. So long as we're all kind of on the same page about that, then there's a lot of autonomy. So we're trying to recreate like the best of Silicon Valley within this cooperative, but without that kind of guiding principle that like, you know, we must win at all costs. Very cool. And I think that's like a, that's a very good point around you get quite a bit of autonomy, mostly because, you know, you, you're like talking about five. 10, 50,000 person organizations, it's impossible to kind of rule them from top down. So taking the best of Silicon Valley and letting people lose, that is a definitely an approach that I'm interested in seeing where it goes, not just here and we'll get to the Web3 DAO stuff later, but that's definitely something that I think is fruitful for this type of organization. And so then getting a little bit more into Drivers Cooperative itself, you know, first, Martin and I have been, you know, movement in this space, looking at democratic governance in the workplace, all that kind of stuff for at least probably half a decade or more. And so just for our audience, could you tell us a bit more about what kind of cooperative drivers cooperative is? Because there are different types and then maybe tell us a bit about how it's organized and maybe even on the legal side. Sure. So we're a like straight up worker owned multi-stakeholder cooperative. The ownership shares are only mm -hmm. issued to drivers at the moment. We've raised capital, but only on a debt basis. So we haven't sold any equity shares. Nobody has any votes except for drivers currently. 
and cooperatives do raise equity financing sometimes, and that's fine. But like, we luckily have not had to just yet. How we're organized, I actually don't remember what kind of legal entity we are, but the important thing is our bylaws establish us as a cooperative. So we have various governing bodies. The, the highest is the board of directors, just like any other organization. And that is elected by some seats directly by drivers, some seats by staff, and some seats are like independent outsiders, but they're ultimately backstopping all decisions of the organization. The other important governing body is what we call the driver board. So that's a board of 19 drivers elected directly from the membership. They set everything about policy. So, you know, what kind of cut does the cooperative take? What kind of, you know, what are some of our main priorities? One thing that comes up a lot is like around policy. So like something I've learned in the space is that even though like in New York City, almost all four hire vehicle drivers are full-time professionals. They do this. They're not like casual, you know, college students driving part-time or something. They're driving like, you know, this is their job and their, their, their career. And they're very good at it. They take it very seriously. And yet pretty much everyone is kind of scared of this like phantom of random deactivation by Uber and Lyft. There's this kind of impression that, you know, seems like true from what I can put it here that you can have a bad day or just a malicious customer or a string of bad luck. And suddenly you're deactivated from one of the platforms and half your potential to, to make money and support your family is just taken away from you. And there's really no recourse. So the driver board at TDC takes on all like issues around policy and enforcement and whatnot. So there's like a driver in the loop for every decision that affects people's livelihoods. So those are two of the main bodies. We also have lots of advisory committees. So one I work with most closely, we call the product committee. So it's a group of drivers who are interested in and the product side of the platform and guiding our roadmap and giving feedback on the product as we build it because we are building a rideshare platform from scratch. So they, the, we meet monthly to get feedback on our roadmap and design and like work pretty closely with them on product issues. So we try and keep a, a driver in the loop for any major decision. It's not just like, you know, staff building this thing and handing it down to drivers. Why do you think that, I mean, have Uber and Lyft done that? Do they have kind of a driver's council? And, and if not, why not? Uh, that's a good question. I think so. There are bodies like IDG, the Independent Drivers Guild, which is kind of a pseudo union that represents drivers' interests, kind of, but is maybe ultimately funded by Uber and doesn't have the ability to negotiate on very important things like wages. So that kind of represents drivers' interests. I'm sure there's plenty of involvement of drivers in at these big platforms. I think it the mindset of it though is kind of different, where they're it's kind of being conducted from above by the the platform owners. So, you know, think of it more like a focus group than a governing body. So, you know, what do drivers think about this? Well, let's go research them rather than, well, drivers are running this thing and like, let's empower them to, to actually make these decisions. Does that make sense? I think it does. I'm just trying to understand the spectrum here of kind of starting an organization that has guaranteed rights at the board level for the stakeholder to your experience at Facebook, where you say that, the board has kind of empowered the employees to make broad decision for the organization. And they don't have kind of those rights at the board level of uh, the board's completely controlled by Zuckerberg and by the institutional investors and Uber and Lyft, where you're essentially going up against them and, and of empowering drivers that isn't in a traditional organizational structure and just kind of that spectrum and how you've been able to do that and why they haven't. Cause it's so clear that, with all the bad news over the past five years, six years for Uber in particular, but Lyft as an addition, that this is something they should do. 
Right. I think it comes down to class location of the, of the workforce. So most people at a tech company are college educated from like a, an upper tier of class, of class society. Whereas in for hire vehicles in New York City, like over 90% of drivers are immigrants. You know, most are like tons of people are people, from, people of color. We speak like maybe 10 to 15 languages commonly in our workforce. So I think it's hard for like a certain kind of elite to look at this group of people and think that they could run this themselves. So that's the experiment that we're investing in. Got it. And then like feeding into this, you mentioned, you know, Uber and Lyft, when you look at some of the things that they've been doing in the last couple of years, not just on the you know politics and the lobbying side, but just in terms of their R&D spend, you know, they are, we're talking about massive, massive, massive amounts of money, right? Like a billion a year from Lyft and like multiple billions a year from Uber. And when you look at that, like, and you consider some of the, I wouldn't say necessarily disadvantage, this is a different way of working, right? You're going to come to decisions more democratically. They might actually open up new avenues and possibilities for your business. How do you kind of think about that space? What is the competitive advantage mm-hmm. for worker ownership in the space when you're up? If you can even think of it as competitive advantage, right? But like, uh, maybe is that even the terms you think of it in when you're thinking of Lyft and Uber and what you guys are doing? Sure. I mean, they're, we're, we're competing in a marketplace. They're, they're the competition. We live under capitalism and competition is the way that like, you know, winners are decided through the market. So we do think of it like that. We also understand we have a different set of goals than mm-hmm. Uber and Lyft. So these major monopolies have raised so much capital that the only way they can recoup for their investors is by winning large monopolies, regional or along different verticals. They have to win those monopolies and then charge monopoly rents in order to justify their just outlandish valuations. So that means they have to spend billions of dollars in R&D. They have to do it against each other. They have to like, there can be only one in the monopoly space, or they have to find a way to like cleave the market that they can both get their monopoly rents in different ways. That's not our goal. And we need to grow our, that like growth is is our objective as well, but not necessarily that kind of growth at all costs, like parasitic, parasitic growth. So for a cooperative like us, like we're successful if we serve our members and we're sustainable. We also want to grow in addition to that, but we don't need to have like 99% market share right away to please our investors or else they'll, they'll replace our CEO or something. So in terms of competition, you know, we think we are attractive to drivers. So on the labor supply side, we charge less of a cut than Uber and Lyft. Our experience is getting better and better of being a driver. And we hope to be pretty close to where Uber and Lyft are by the end of this year. So we're hoping to be able to put more money in driver's pockets than Uber and Lyft can per ride. And we're on track to do that. So, and we also give drivers a way to control their workplaces, right? I mean, wages are super important, but also a sense of security and ownership and the thing you and the place you work at is always important as well. So it's on the, the driver side, kind of an easier pitch there. On the consumer side, it's obviously harder, right? Because what does consumer care about? An easy experience, fast pickup times and low costs. So we can get competitive there. Over time, we're pretty sure. But if we're not hyper exploiting our workers, like maybe costs are going to be a problem for a while. A few things we're we're thinking about here are have to do with like an ethical consumer viewpoint, at least for the the initial phase of our business. And then over time, just being able to do things a lot cheaper. So 
you know, there are people who shop at the local grocery cooperative. Like I get most of my groceries from the grocery co-op down the street because I like that it's a worker owned cooperative and, and I like their products. You could imagine five to 15% of consumers are able to, to make decisions this way and are interested in doing so. And if we peel off 5% of New York City rideshare traffic, that is a massively successful business, right? And again, with uh, our goal of sustainable growth and, you know, doing well by our members, that is a successful case for the driver's cooperative. So we can view that as the goal for the next few years is to get to that level of growth and then to expand to other cities to do the same there. Moving beyond that is obviously going to be hard because, you know, our competitors can raise it just essentially infinite amounts of capital to do uh, to expand or to lower prices temporarily to undercut competitors or move into new markets. So that's going to be a big challenge for sure. And we have some ideas there, but our focus for now is definitely just to get to a sustainable growth level. Okay. Well, I guess I have a question on kind of the end game here, right? Because these R&D investments that, that Jahad's brought up are contributing to driverless future, right? Where effectively you've got better utilization of this asset, which has a bunch of positive benefits for society, right? You have lesser congestion in cities. You've got decreasing carbon emissions because they're more fuel efficient and effectively they're the, util- the higher utilization rates leads to, to better sustainability impacts. And so I'm just wondering kind of in the end game here, how do you see Drivers Cooperative being a place for this labor class to continually have kind of good employment and good wages in this environment where you've got two major players that, as you mentioned, can go out and do, I mean, they're both publicly traded now, so they'd have to do secondaries, right, to raise more capital or, or get new debt in or just use their cash flow. But how do you see the end game here with kind of the vision for drivers cooperative in this world that probably is going to move to driverless vehicles and labor not actually being in in the car. Sure. So one premise I want to question is this certainty or the technological determinism of, you know, somebody had this idea that we're going to build self-driving cars. There's been some early promise and some early difficulties with that technology. But this assumption that will be there in like two years or five years is kind of, you see it a lot in like the tech press, but it it's, doesn't feel super likely to me. So the, the timeline is probably longer than anyone is thinking. But I mean, we will end up with driverless cars eventually you know, probably more years from now than, than like people are commonly saying. It also probably won't be the entire industry for quite a while. You know, it might be like a lot of ride share, but there's lots and lots of times you actually need, you know, a person in the car. For instance, one of the main kind of trips we do right now is accessible paratransit in New York City. So that's people with wheelchairs, people who sometimes need assistance, like a step stool getting in and out of a car. So we're very happy to be doing these kind of trips because they have a good like social impact as well as a good revenue for us those trips are not going away anytime soon as well. But then beyond that, we need to be thinking about just transitions for workforces in all kinds of ways. As a society draw down from fossil fuels, the people who work in fossil fuels need to be taken care of. As we draw down from rideshare towards self-driving cars, the people who make a living you know, doing rideshare and, and have in the tradition of taxis to, for higher vehicles for a century, these people you know, deserve a way to take care of their families as technology and society shift underneath them. Um, so 
as a socialist, I generally think like labor is the starting point for, for any kind of action, organized labor. So if how are we going to demand that as self-driving cars take over this industry that employs millions of people, those people aren't left destitute, right? We have a policy committee within the driver's cooperative that helps our organize our drivers or helps drivers organize themselves around our policy goals. So this includes, you know, they're working on their platform now, but likely things to end up on it include a transition to electric vehicles. The, the state has an interest in assisting us to transition to EVs. And just the same, I think that if self-driving cars replace a lot of the workforce in logistics and for hire vehicles, then the people who are working in those fields need to be taken care of. They need to be paid. They need to be given train access to training programs. It, that's it's in the interest of our drivers. It's also the interest in the interest of our society to not suddenly put millions of people out in the street. So the way to demand that, well, let's just say that like the gig labor monopolies of today don't need to demand that. They have no interest in doing so, right? Because they're responsible to their shareholders, not their workforce. But at the driver's cooperative, uh, and if this kind of model were to grow, you have an organized base of labor to say, you know, hey, we make these demands collectively and have a much greater chance of like winning these demands because like, we're acting together in concert. So I just want to push on that a little bit, a little bit more, right? Because I think like I understand kind of, and John and I are both sympathetic to kind of the driver's cooperative. And so I don't want this to feel like an attack in any way, but it seems like this concept of labor versus capital and black versus white and cooperative black versus white in terms of kind of no shades of gray in between cooperative versus VC backed tech company actually doesn't really get at the type of humans we are today, which is we're both laborers and we might have shares in companies, right? We act in different environments. You can have an Uber driver or a Lyft driver that likes the high utilization on those platforms because it allows them to have a life outside of that job and then can go do that job when they're transitioning, right? And so I'm just wondering if this, I want to push on kind of this kind of end game here, because wouldn't another way to support these drivers be to help them actually own the asset itself, the car, so that they actually, if we move into a world where there's increased mechanization and you essentially have this class of people that are going out of a long-term kind of area of social mobility, you know, my dad did taxi driving for a while when he was young, right? And so this has been a cornerstone of social mobility in the United States for at least 50 years. But if the future is driverless and we're moving to a world of mechanization, it would seem that it would make as much sense to figure out how to make this class of people. And again, I don't know who this class of people is because I think like, it's not like the lower 20% of the wealth distribution. It's actually a fairly large swath of, of society that comes in and out of these labor roles. But wouldn't it make more sense to try to figure out how do we make them capital owners? Yeah, that is interesting. So to talk about, you know, driving a taxi or for hire vehicle being a like middle-class job with mobility, historically, that is extremely true. Like it has been a great job for immigrants to move to America, buy a taxi, get investment to, as in the form of a loan, buy a taxi, buy a medallion, and be kind of a, an entrepreneur and do better for your children and your family over time. That just isn't as true anymore. The changes to the logistics market since Uber and Lyft kind of won so hard in the US have actually made it a job with a lot less social mobility. And that's one of the reasons that drivers are so passionate at the driver's cooperative about getting a better deal for themselves because they saw, they've just seen their wages and chances of a better life for their kids just really uh, decrease over, over the past like few decades. 
So starting there to talk just a little about where most of our drivers are at. And this has been a bit of a surprise to me. Like it's not just a paycheck to paycheck kind of life for a for hire vehicle driver today. And again, I agree, this is not everyone. There's people in the cooperative who drive, who bought $80,000 luxury SUVs and they do very expensive rides and, you know, they have some things in common with the people driving a $25,000 Camry, but also some things that are different between them. But overall, there's a feeling that, you know, things are not going as well as they used to. So a lot of people are not just paycheck to paycheck, they're just day to day, right? Like we initially were paying out rides once a week. So our drivers got paid once a week because that's all our new payroll system could handle. And drivers are very unwilling to drive for us to wait a week for their wages. As So as we've built up our, our platform, we now pay out daily. And that's been a huge change for our drivers. So you know, do drivers want access to capital and to be owners? Yes, absolutely. Do they have the means to do so? Like not usually just like most workers in the US like are never going to own a stock. The approach we're taking is to give drivers shares through their labor because we're a cooperative. However, to get to the question of how do drivers become like owners of this future that is more self-driving? I think that is also very interesting. I think like there needs to be a, a system for, again, guaranteeing that these millions of workers are not left destitute after if this transition happens and it's managed in a way that like maximizes stability in our society as in not again making millions of people homeless to me that doesn't look like lyft isn't going to just like issue shares to drivers at a large scale and dilute their ownership out of like the goodness of their hearts however i think there is a lot of room for policy here and state intervention which will i think be driven by organized labor so for instance if a company is going to lay off a workforce due to automation, there should either be a pension program in place or maybe a suggestion you would like is that the shares of the company should be given to the workers who are being laid off. They should have kind of permanent ownership in the thing that they helped build and then were replaced through automation. So I'm very interested in models like that for sure. Yeah. And I mean, that gets into issues as well, right? So like John and I are based in Spain. You, what happens when you hire a worker in Spain is they essentially you accrue a liability on the balance sheet for that worker for every month they earn. And then when they're laid off, they automatically get paid out from that liability, which has some really positive benefits. If you look at ownership in Spain, it's actually the average ownership, the average wealth in some regards is higher than the United States and the lower kind of three fifths of the population. Um, and so it has led to some social stability. I do think that like, it seems to me what you're saying is that it's not that the world and the dichotomization of the world between kind of the supermajority shares and VC-backed companies like Facebook are one class and the driver's cooperatives of the world are the other class of companies that are out there. It's just that there isn't actually a middle ground that has been created thus far for financing these ventures in a way that allows for guaranteeing the rights of the worker over the course of over the course of the venture, of the timeline of the venture, outside of the cooperative movement to date. And that's one of the things that we really go into detail with on this pod is trying to find that middle ground between kind of the Facebooks of the world or the Ubers of the world and the driver cooperatives of the world. But it sounds like ideologically, the reason for setting this up as a cooperative to date is essentially to say, look, we wanted to institutionalize these rules and these, these rights for the workers. And maybe there's a better way to do this but this was the easiest way to do this within the legal framework that we have today. One of the things that you mentioned is you think that there's kind of, there's regulatory policy that could support this. And you worked on the Sanders campaign for a bit. 
But if there were, you know, one or two regulations that if you had the ear of kind of the Secretary of Labor or the Biden administration, what would you want to put in place to support this group of workers in a or this class of workers that you're interacting with on a day to day basis in a better way? That's a great question and a pretty tough one. You know, I I was against Prop 22, this proposition that passed here in California that kind of enshrined the gig labor model as something very separate from employment, does not have the, the rights of employment. It you know was kind of framed as like a good deal for the the gig workers, but there's a reason it was backed by Uber and Lyft and and those companies to the tune of I think over 200 million dollars, and it passed. But and I and before I worked at the drivers cooperative, I just lamented this. I thought the employment model uh, was probably better for workers, and I, and I still think in a lot of ways it is. But something I've learned is that kind of line from Uber and Lyft that drivers really appreciate flexibility, that flexibility is one of the main perks of the job. It's not just propaganda. Drivers do really like that. They like being able to clock in and out flexibly. They want that. They also want to not be jerked around by their boss that's an app for some reason. They want like transparency and and kind of fairness baked into the platform. We don't think that nicer capitalists is the answer. So there have been rideshare companies and gig labor platforms that have popped up to say like, we're just like Uber, except we're nice, <laughs> you know, to kind of simpli- uh, describe it simplistically. When push comes to shove, that just doesn't work because when, you know, under our this ideology of shareholder max- value maximization that really does run the American market today, you just can't do that because investors will always get their way. So going back to, you know, what kind of policy interventions would we want? I think it's, I'm not sure if there's going to be one big intervention. It's probably going to be a patchwork of of lots of small things that just make it easier and easier to operate a cooperative and harder and harder to operate more extractive monopoly. So in every city across America, we, and probably across the world, we see local governments just at war with gig labor platforms constantly, right? Gig labor platforms are skirting the law, ignoring it, pushing the boundaries all the time, mm-hmm. finding new ways to classify their companies that just skirt one regulation or another tax or another fee. So we've moved from this kind of system where taxis are part of the transit fabric of a company of a city that's managed to keep the right number of cars on the road and guarantee like wages of certain kinds to kind of an anarchic system in most places. And Uber is like, these monopolies have probably just like won in most of these markets. They've just defeated the local government. But there, you still see these, these conflicts happen all the time to the point where if, like last year, if you opened the Uber Eats app in San Francisco, I believe it called out the name of a board of supervisors member by name and said like, if you don't like this, you know, that we're not delivering to this island now, please call this guy's office. So, you know, there's this conflict is still going on. So for every single one of those regulations, what I would like to see is that it's easier to operate if you're a cooperative, you know, there are less onerous regulations. And if you're an extractive industry that takes money out of a community and exploits workers and ultimately is having a net negative benefit, net negative effect on your city, on your community, then maybe it's just harder and harder for you to get that license you need or or evade that tax that you want to evade. So we can shift from, you know, this 10% ethical consumer base to more and more kind of eating into the capitalist monopolies market share. That's, I think, our best, the best chance for any cooperative labor platform to move to scale. Yeah, I think that this, what you said about monopolies is really the key, right? Because all the, uh, me personally, all I'm interested in seeing is actually uh, competition, honestly, right? Like there's, there actually 
isn't a lot of it, right? And because there's privileged access to lobbying to, you know, I'm going to, I have access to a 300 million or 30 million or whatever metropolitan area audience where I can just put the supervisors, I can put the bureaucrats name in the app, right? And have that be my leverage, right? So like things like that, you know, you look at it and, and honestly, uh, the history of the 20th century in, a, in various socialist movements, there are very interesting things that came out of market socialism and other veins of heterodox economics that kind of showed you the way, the possibilities there. And so just to dovetail on your last point there, I think it's just even for my version of an answer to Martin's question, it's like, just regulate monopolies. We seem to stop doing that right in the last hundred years. And honestly, you know, I'm simplifying it down a bit though. It's actually extremely difficult to do so for a number of reasons, which we don't have to get into, but like. Well, you have had this, you know, zeitgeist in the U.S. that's different than the European Union, which is like, okay, we're just going to look at a monopoly in terms of its share of consumption in a particular market, right? Whereas the, the European Union has been a lot more innovative when it comes to looking at how monopolies actually act and the negative effects that they have on exactly. So. Exactly. So there isn't like, it is complex, but there is already a playbook or at least a template for us to figure that kind of stuff out. So maybe step one is just saying, make the marketplace that people are competing in more fair by enacting actual <laughs> monopoly regulations. And monopolies look a particular way based on certain pieces of data and inputs and outputs that happen in the communities they operate in. Could be as simple as that. So that's that's pretty interesting, man. I think it's the job of practitioners and entrepreneurs to build those alternatives. Right now, we could say, and abstractly, it would be great if there wasn't such monopoly culture and gig labor platforms. But what is the alternative? Is somebody actually saying, like, I am being stifled by the market power of these hugely funded monopolies? Well, really not. There isn't at the moment. So our goal is to create the, the best alternative possible and to get it as far as possible before the state needs to intervene to say that, hey, this is the actual alternative that is being crushed by the lack of monopoly enforcement in this country. Very nice. And then just to pick up on some of the competitive things that you were talking about there at the end, you know, you mentioned that a while back, you're talking about equity growth and not thinking about these things that drivers cooperative in the same way necessarily as the firms you're competing against. Of course, you want to grow, but it's not growth at all costs. And also you mentioned that, you know, full disclosure, I should have done this at the beginning. I am an investor in <laughs> driver's cooperative as well, right? But that doesn't mean we're not going to ask, you know, the interesting questions here, audience, just FYI. But uh, so how are you folks thinking about fundraising and growth then, right? Given that, given your, your structure, what is the, maybe at a first pass, what has been the interaction with investors, maybe outside of crowdfunding? Have people approached you? Are they curious? Yeah, so we've raised... We're closing now a round of about 1.4 million in crowdfunding. We've also raised a good deal in other loans from cooperative loan funds, as well as grants from the foundations that want to see what we're building exist in the world. What we haven't raised is equity capital from venture funds. That doesn't mean we haven't talked to venture funds. We've had a lot of really fun conversations with venture capitalists where they make it clear they're big fans of what we're doing, but you know it just doesn't really make sense with their LPs and based on the risk profile that their firm is looking for to invest. And so we've stop talking to venture capitalists because after having that conversation a few dozen times where, you know, it just, there's a lot of excitement for them. Can you break that down a little bit? Like, can you Mm -hmm. break down, like, what are they not excited about? Mm -hmm. Is it the 
the one member, one vote model. And so they don't understand the governance is that they, they effectively don't see kind of the return on capital for the limited partners in the sense that they don't think you can grow fast enough. Like what have been the objections? Because I think this is a, a key point around kind of equity financing for cooperatives. Sure. It really comes down to the risk profile of equity financing. So the venture model is that, you know, most companies you invest in will not return at all and then occasionally have a hundred X or a thousand X return, right? If we're not pursuing equity financing where your shares can massively grow, it's instead we're looking at loans that charge interest and have caps of, you know, like single digit multiples, like you can only make three X back on your investment or something that just doesn't make any sense for most venture funds because they don't want a bunch of three X or five X or 10 X returns. They want 90 nothing returns and like 10 hundred X or above returns. And that's just, you know, there's all kinds of investments you can make in the market. That is just one flavor of investment that venture has, has landed on. There used to be other ways to finance businesses. You know, you used to go to the bank and get a loan to start your local cafe or something. And those that still happens, obviously. It's just we don't spend any time talking about that kind of investment. Like venture has grown to this huge level where, you know, the coffee shops in San Francisco are all VC backed by by like top tier VC firms, which seems quite ridiculous to me, but that is the, the reality of the market. So we're not super attractive to venture today when valuations are so high, the markets are so frothy, there's so much capital sloshing around, basically. Which is kind of ridiculous, right? Because, and I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just the, it's ridiculous because if you think about who the LPs of those venture funds are, there's certainly kind of the super rich, right? In terms of kind of wealthy, very high net worth individuals, individuals with more than 30 million in assets in the United States. But the reality is, is most of the LPs of those VC groups are actually pension funds, right? Or mm-hmm. other institutional investors, universities that represent the public. And so they're effectively funding a model that is actively destroying kind of the fabric of an economy to support the people that are in those pension funds at the same time that they're trying to, you know, maximize or ensure that there is a steady return for the pension fund holders or the stakeholders of the university or whatever other institutional players and is a a limited partner in that fund. So I would think that, you know, some of these LPs would be interested in what you're doing and could actually put pressure on specific venture fund groups. I'd also think that there's a set of impact investors that would be very interested and willing to take kind of more risk but has it been the return itself and the thought process that this can't be a 100x return because these guys can't grow fast enough and they're going into a space that's already dominated by this duopoly? You know, whether or not it's a duopoly, I think is a, a larger argument, but it goes back to kind of that, that whole FTC framework. Or is it that they look at the governance model and they say, we don't get the cooperative? Like, can they get their head around the cooperative and it's really a growth story? Or is it actually the cooperative regulatory model that's the issue for them? Gotcha. So first, if you're saying that capitalism is an internally contradictory system that sows the seeds of its own demise, well, I'm convinced. But I don't know if that's what I said, but I think there is something in there. Definitely. So, But then in the specifics of, of TDC, I think investors are intrigued and maybe enthused about the impact aspects of it and the self-governance aspects of it, for sure. It is mostly the, the lack of return that makes them general partners unable to commit to the deal because it's not in the interest of their limited part of their LPs, their limited partners. But I think 
there are ways there are paths forward from the situation. And I think we can see that in the DAO space and the Web3 space where democracy and decentralized ownership is kind of built in. But so far, VCs are also seeing those absurd returns on investment that they need to justify uh, to their LPs. I, that's not to wholly endorse the Web3 space. Like I don't see a lot of these like massive valuation growths being sustainable or based on real value, but it does mean that we are, see- we are seeing venture capitalists invest in things that are nominally about democracy. And I think that is a very interesting development. Yeah, it's funny. You just dovetailed backed right into what I was going to ask you about next. So thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the more interesting pieces I came across, you know, we've been chatting for a while was a couple months ago, you published your Think Boy piece, Why Cooperatives and DAOs Might Make Sense Together. And, you know, there's been a number of these, but I found yours to be on the much more interesting side, mostly because it's written by a person who has actual experience in a cooperative, which I think is, you know, valuable. Not I'm, not, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. Anyone can do research. It's just some of it you can't get anywhere else, right? So this is, as you said, now even with the VCs circling, it is nominally and is new est- newly established norm around ownership by all stakeholders, right? To the folks who work in them and the folks who hold tokens and the ones who founded it and maybe the ones who invested it, that much might not be as clear. It might be clear in the tokenomics, but like ideologically, it might not be clear, but it's there, right? And so, you know, I'm obviously hugely in favor of that as a lot of my own investment thesis and why I'm interested in these things. But given that you wrote that a few months ago, where are you at now in your thinking on DAOs and your maybe even a potential DAO journey for drivers co op? Yeah, we're having a lot of conversations about it internally and then with potential partners and experts in the space. So trying to do a ton of research on it. We're being very cautious because we don't want to accidentally sell like too much of the company or like give outside investors real power over the workplace, which is like our goal is to empower workers here. But we're also extremely interested in the space, especially as we expand beyond New York City. It's going to take capital to launch new cities, to hire staff and management in new cities, and to uh, help bootstrap those two-sided marketplaces all around the world. So we need that capital, and we also need to maintain the ownership and governance structures that we've built and scale them. I'm pretty optimistic about DAOs as a way to do this, cautiously optimistic, I guess I would say, at the point where, say, we have uh, you know 50 to 100 cities with their own cooperatives locally managed, running rideshare operations locally, we need a way to come together and agree on the platform and the roadmap and the overall, like the brand even. One kind of product commitment that we're sticking to is that there needs to be one little square on your phone that's called Co-op Ride, and you can open it in as many cities around the world as possible and get a ride. And it might tell you like, hey, you're in New York City, your ride is being offered by the driver's cooperative. Here's a little about their governance and you know, get to know the drivers or something. And then you open the same thing in Bologna, Italy. And it says like, this is offered by the local taxi cooperative. Here's like the brand colors. Here's like a little bit about their business. Here's what cut goes to the driver and to the business and whatnot. I think this is a pretty compelling product experience. Then figuring out how to govern that is interesting. So we were thinking of it as a federation of different cooperatives that come together to form a producer cooperative. That's a term your listeners might know, but like commonly you see like Lando Lakes Butter in the US. That's a producer cooperative of a bunch of dairy farmers getting together and making a brand and product around their commodities. So what does the producer cooperative look like for the gig labor space? That's kind of what we're trying to figure out. And then how do we govern that? Like, you know, there's actually a lot of different entities there that have competing interests. So there's every individual driver, there's the local cooperatives themselves, 
that are formed of of drivers in a locality. And then there's the platform overall and the staff and management of that platform. So I guess the way I'm evolving to think about like the DAO is that it's not some revolutionary new idea. It's a lot more boring than that. It's basically a better and evolved LLC where all the kind of particularities of a business and control of a business or an organization are just made as explicit as possible. So that's what we're pretty interested in. Right now, my entire team's focus is on getting drivers in cars and passengers in cars and operating, you know, our platform, which is very new. And we're building, you know, we're building features one day and they're being used the next day. Like that we have very little time to stop and explore, you know, idle curiosities for the future. So we haven't put as much engineering work into building the DAO as I would like, but as we stabilize and, and grow sustainably in New York, then that's going to be one of our biggest focuses. Uh, that's phenomenal. Very exciting. And I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of take them in turn here. So I think like thinking of your platform almost as a composable, basically what you described is like a composable platform where you could have any number of cooperatives happening in any geo that all kind of roll up into the rails that your team, that your worker owners have built, right? I guess you could call them the tech worker owners. Well, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily own a class of shares yet, correct? Due to some organizational debt, no, but like we plan to fix that at some point. So uh, like you were saying, this kind of becomes a composable white label thing that has a number in any geo potentially you could have sub DAOs roll up into a bigger DAO that's the driver's cooperative itself. And that presents a lot of really interesting interfaces, ways for people to interact with this technology. And so maybe that's another thing to kind of poke at and see what your opinion is. In my interaction with DAOs, I've been in them for about over a year and a half or so. I am still a DAO skeptic myself. That's how I position myself when I talk to folks, just because the evolution of these interfaces and the ways to interact with this technology are still so nascent, right? And so when you think about this from the perspective of like having a great experience as predictable as picking it up in any other city, like you said, and hitting one app button on your phone, how about from the perspective of drivers and getting them, you know, wallets and all these other things that might actually come into play? Where do you think your particular population of folks is in adopting this kind of technology? Yeah, good question. So one thing I love to tell people about is how every time I am working with the driver and looking at the app on their phone and then looking at their phone, they all have Coinbase installed, right? Because gig worker uh, like Uber drivers don't always think of themselves as workers. They're, they think of themselves as entrepreneurs. And, and that's accurate, right? They've invested in a vehicle. They've started a business. They're working on a platform that disempowers them most of the time, but they're still they're of an entrepreneurial mindset. Again, almost all immigrants. So there's like a hustle to it, right? And crypto and, you know, speculating on crypto is where like hustle mindset is right now. That doesn't mean that they understand, you know, quadratic voting and, and like self-custody and whatnot, but that's a starting point for sure. On the technical side, I think, you know, a massive gig labor labor platform built on web three is going to need pretty complex tokenomic structures. I think there's going to be probably several tokens involved, one to the meta organizations, like the federation that owns the brand or some to the, those stakeholders, some to local cooperatives and the management thereof, whose interests are in growing and sustaining local cooperatives and then workers themselves who ultimately are the people that we care about the most here. So there's going to be yeah, complex structures with complex contracts that are all custom made, I'm pretty sure. But you can, with some effort, you can put a UX on that that is like 
not completely atrocious like where it is today. I've seen some decentralized applications now that kind of bake in a wallet and it's a hosted wallet where you're not really self-custodying your keys. But then if you want to move to a self-custody wallet, it's kind of a flow that's supported so that expert users and you know people who are paranoid about managing their own shares and property themselves are able to do so, but most people aren't. I, at Facebook, I worked on the Libra project for my last two years there. And this is something we looked at a lot. Like we want to support self-custody, but also we want a to be a kind of the, the first like extremely user-friendly system where people don't have to think about it if they if they don't want to, if this is their first experience doing so. Not like Libra worked out, but I think some of my learnings there were that you can actually make these compromises. It just takes a lot of work. And right now I think the the Web3 community is way too inwardly focused where mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of DAOs about building DAOs, about building wallets, about building you know Web3 tools. And that makes sense to a degree because this thing is bootstrapping itself. That's not my interest. My interest is in building a functional business that's ready to scale and then using Web3 technologies as an implementation detail to do so. Got it. And then I think the Web3 side of this, as you mentioned, is you know at this point in its life cycle, it's kind of at this point where it's it, the VC money is chasing it. And, you know, like you said, every single person is in your in driver's co-op, you're doing user research, you'll see a little Coinbase icon. That's awesome. I think what you pointed out here with Facebook is really interesting though. And so maybe in the last few minutes, we can uh, poke into that a little bit. I know you're an early part of the DM project and that project has now, I think it became, uh, was it Novi? And then Novi was shuttered and that team left, right? Basically, yeah, everyone is rolled off. It was Libra became DM, Calibra became Novi. I worked more on the product side, on the Calibra Novi side, but was there one of the first like five or six engineers on the whole project. So I got to see the Libra DM blockchain evolve as well. Got it. So then like with this, it's really interesting from the perspective of like institutional, of the failure for a big institution to kind of make that make sense, right? So now with you on this side, almost you're looking at it from the other end where you've started from a very small and there are nascent technologies in Web3 that can maybe help you scale and get scaling in governance, maybe not necessarily governance, scaling in technology and distributed on the distributed engineering and you know scaling side. Looking at this from the Facebook side, you know, maybe you're on the inside to the extent you can, why did they kind of fail to adopt this technology? What happened in your experience? Good question. I mean, there are probably like cultural and product reasons, but then the regulatory reasons loom largest. I did notice that Libra was built in a pretty different way than most things at Facebook. Um, at Facebook, like like I said, it was mostly, it was a very democratic culture, very bottom-up culture in some ways, where a lot of big features were actually developed by engineers or small teams at hackathons is putting things together, trying them out, getting early feedback and iterating. That's kind of the, the DNA of Facebook. Libra was built in a pretty different way where, you know, a couple hundred people were hired to work on it before even the product vision was really solidified. Uh, it was kind of the, how I imagine like the US army approaches a problem, just like hire some generals, hire some folks under them and some folks under them, and then start hiring the bottom rungs of the ladder. So that I think was so culturally different within Facebook that it, it just wasn't set up for success. And when people didn't have that kind of experience and, and Facebook is obviously a massive corporation that acts like a massive corporation, but in like the product way, I don't think it does. It doesn't usually do this kind of top-down thing. So that was difficult culturally, but then this kind of space, you kind of need that top-down approach because the big question was always going to be, uh, is this going to pass regulatory muster? You know, the 
very high-minded ideals of Libra were, were to kind of create a global reserve currency that was not controlled by central banks. That was controlled by this consortium of organizations, including like universities and think tanks and, and research institutions, but also just the big corporate finance monopolies of the world, the PayPal's, the Facebook's and other banks sure. like that. So it turned out that, you know, even taking like that best case to like regulatory agencies in the United States was not good enough. So it got kind of, and then the Facebook brand was a big uh, albatross around our neck, I guess, because, you know, it was the kind of a low point for the Facebook brand and no regulator wanted to say like, yes, I support Facebook controlling global currency flows. And then I trust so, government. We can yeah. trust Zuckerberg with all of our money. And so much just get rid of every single central bank. <laughs> Pretty much. Cool. So I think, I mean, you have a super interesting background, man. I love chatting with you about this, about your, your co-op experience, your the evolution of yourself and your awareness, you know, the worker and labor organizing. You have a, such an interesting background to especially ending here on this note with Facebook, taking now stepping back and kind of seeing where you're at with Drivers Cooperative, you know, the stuff you mentioned around Facebook's failure had a lot to do with regulation and top-down stuff. And my bull case for cooperatives is that at the end of the day, if you empower people with not necessarily, you know, ownership is important, of course, but voice processing and information asymmetries that exist in other organizations that I don't necessarily think at least they'll be more amenable in co-ops. Looking at it now from your experience there, coming out of Facebook and going to you know, Drivers Cooperative, what do you think? Uh, how does that apply to Drivers Cooperative and where you folks are going? Let's see, well, one learning from like my experience in big corporations is that the investment necessary to create massive amounts of value goes down over time. That's a cool thing about capitalism, I must admit. So, you know, I transitioned from Microsoft to Google to Facebook, and each of these were kind of a, a new generation of how tech is done and created value in a leaner and leaner way, where like Facebook had roughly a tenth the employees of Google at the similar level of valuation in their history. And I think that trend continues as you, you know, WhatsApp had what, like 20 employees or something when it was acquired for billions and billions of dollars. So this trend of small teams being able to create massive amounts of value in this economy is continuing and accelerating. I'm quite certain that building our platform the way we're building it now wouldn't have been possible even 10 years ago, but we're using, you know, best in class open source technologies. We're deploying everything on Kubernetes. We're using React and React Native, these technologies built inside Facebook and doing a lot with a very small team. You know, Uber has many thousands of engineers, we have nine, but we're going to build a product that is, you know, within striking distance of quality in a lot of cases of these much bigger platforms. So I think this trend is going to continue and we're going to try and help accelerate it. Some of the things I'm most excited about at the Drivers Cooperative is our vision for open sourcing more and more of the platform. We're kind of developing a few of these technologies in stealth right now, but they are technically open source where the hardest problems in a gig labor platform are kind of the same across all of them, whether it's DoorDash or Uber or even like a job platform. So even if you're building a TaskRabbit, a lot of the things you look for are the same. You have worker, a provider, a customer, you know, a real-time matching algorithm, geographic services built in. And then you have a front end on top of it that, you know, relates these concepts to your, your user, your, your business case. So why not build one of these marketplace engines that does the matching and then share it across lots and lots of different verticals with lots and lots of different organizations. I know that hundreds and hundreds of people at these gig monopolies work on these platforms, optimizing them. They have PhDs in economics. They're like, you know, really, really advancing these technologies, but they're closed source. So one of our projects is to build that marketplace engine, but in open source and hopefully accelerate the development of other gig labor platforms. Over time, I think we'll open source more and more of our platform to try and help drive the cost of starting a 
gig labor cooperative is close to zero as possible. So we'll have more and more competition in this space. And if we're able to organize through governance mechanisms into like federations or organizations that can work together, then we can actually start to challenge these monopolies. Very cool. And that might be one of the superpowers of Web3, like you said, making it a fork instead of just a repo that someone has then can be a way for you to bring the government's mechanics and the wealth generation and ownership mechanics along for the ride. That's Definitely. super cool, man. Well, last thing that being, you know, that we always like to give folks an opportunity to chill. So tell us where we can follow you online, follow your work and uh, see in Drivers Co-op as well, if you want to tell everyone where they can learn more about it. Definitely. Thanks a lot. So you can see the Drivers Cooperative at drivers.coop.coop is our TLD. We're wrapping up now our investment, our crowdfunding campaign for debt investments in the co-op. So if you find, if you go to drivers.coop, there'll be a link on top. You can also find us on WeFunder. To follow me personally, mostly I just live on Twitter. So I'm at Jason P. Jason on Twitter. A couple times a year, I'll write an essay on my Substack, like we talked about. That's venturecommune.substack.com. And I'd love to talk to more people about the space. If you know a lot about building DAOs and building governance for real world organizations, then I would love to talk to you and see if we can uh, learn from each other and what we're doing in TDC. Thanks a lot, Jason. This has been awesome. All right. Thanks, Alan. Great talking to you.